I'd like to have you turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now last week we began our study of the, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. And uh, it was, of course, introductory. We somewhat touched upon verses 1 and 2. I will review a little bit of that. Uh, Today we are going to read verses 1 through 8 as we begin uh, a series in a couple of weeks here, these next couple of weeks, on what we find in this particular passage as Paul giving to us uh, the foundations of the Christian life early on in this letter to this church. And uh, I, I say it this way because we are going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to study verses 1 and 2. Uh, and that's it. I mean, that's how we study the scriptures here. So we're going to look very carefully at at those two verses, but that's foundational again to the foundations that we will find in verses three through eight next week. Okay, so you got to come back. See, I, I'm, I'm just doing everything I can to make sure you got come back. Don't miss anything. But if you're here for the first time, or if you're here at least for the first time in this particular series of studies, then you're here at the right moment. And you'll just have to hear next week's later. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. The small market town known as Colosse in Asia Minor, what is today modern Turkey, was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and was situated on the south bank of the Lycus River, a tributary of the Meander River. Colossae had two sister cities or towns nearby, Hierapolis and Laodicea, which were in the same valley and each about a day's journey from the smaller town of Colossae. And since it was on the main road that connected Ephesus to the Euphrates River in the east. This little town had known the the, the marching cadence of the armies of 
of Persian kings Cyrus and Xerxes. Its population was a mixture of Phrygians, Greeks, and Jews. Phrygia was an area much like Galatia, where certain churches existed in that area, or in those areas. Now, the area surrounding Colosse was, was riddled with the marks of previous volcanic eruptions. In fact, within several years of the writing of Paul's letter to the church of Colosse, the town itself was destroyed by an earthquake. Had it not been for the apostles' letter written to the church there, it would have been a very insignificant footnote in the pages of history. And as brief as the letter is, it, it truly ranks among the giants of the New Testament epistles. No one has written such grand and eloquent words about the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul has done in this letter. I refer you again to a passage I read to you last week, but I read it, at least part of it again, that we might hear the majesty of this particular statement about Jesus. We begin in verse 15 of, of chapter 1, where Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. For Paul to call Jesus the firstborn places Jesus in that position of ranking first in priority and position over and above all of his creation. And that he, Jesus, takes precedence over all. I mentioned last time that the theme of this book is, is the headship of Jesus Christ being that he is the head of the church. But you want to add a couple of, 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 of things. You want to add to the supremacy of Christ. You want to add the all-sufficiency of Christ to this theme. Yes, he is head of the church, but Jesus Christ is supreme over all. And he is all-sufficient. And so that then enlarges our understanding of the theme of this book. Now, as mentioned last time, the date of the writing of this letter is uncertain, but it was probably written between 60 and 63 AD when Paul was a, a prisoner in Rome. The main theme of this letter is, as I said, the headship of Christ, since the purpose of the letter was to combat the dangerous and threatening heresy of Gnosticism. And of course, we'll get into that as we go on into the letter itself. But let's transition from reviewing what we learned about Paul in the first verse of chapter 1 to reinforcing now the information that makes up the greeting or the salutation. As I said last time, so much is fit into such a little passage in verses 1 and 2, as we'll see today, even more than last time. In verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle 
of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. Now, there are 13 epistles, 13 epistles in the New Testament that begin with the name Paul. Now, there's a 14th letter also that is generally accepted as having been written by Paul, but the authorship of the epistle to the Hebrews has faced considerable dispute, even though I, I continue to believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But the 13, beginning with the name Paul, are written either to churches among the Gentiles or to individual believers, like Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And since Paul was considered the apostle of the Gentiles, Paul would certainly magnify his apostolic office and position, which of course was given to him by the Lord as told to the disciple of Damascus, a man named Ananias, who was sent to Paul by God. Now this is a very important story that we need to hear about Paul before we press on. It has to do about uh, during the time of Paul's conversion from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle, or actually Paul the believer in Jesus Christ. As Paul is on the road to Damascus and is met by Jesus himself, all along the Lord has been preparing for this other meeting. We're told in verse 13 of Acts chapter 9, then Ananias, this man from Damascus, relatively really unknown to us except for his name here. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I, I, I have heard by many of this man. The Lord has already told him that you, you're going to meet this man, Saul. <laughs> Ananias says, I, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And, and I can almost see a parenthesis after this and, and, and Ananias saying, which includes me too. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now let me quickly say that we must understand that God is not sending Paul out there to suffer because he's punishing him for having been such a persecutor of the believer. No, it would be the Apostle Paul who would teach us a, a, a very important truth that all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, all of us who follow Christ, will suffer for our faith. And Paul would acknowledge his calling, this calling that was given to him by God himself. He would acknowledge it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Unto me, and I want you to listen to the heart of Paul here, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
He takes hold of the calling that God has given him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul began his Colossian letter by reminding the believers of his Christ-given calling and that that calling was not by the will of Peter or James and or John or any other man for that matter. No one could promote him or demote him. The only one who could do any of that would be God himself. And one thing he would have as proof of his calling was the long string of churches that he had founded or were founded by his converts. Churches that, that stretch from Illyricum, which is modern day Yugoslavia. And I realize there's not a Yugoslavia anymore. Did you know that? You know, you, you've got all these other state or uh, nations now Croatia, Slovenia, Macedonia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. So, but that, so that's Illyricum in the Bible, that area. From Illyricum all the way to Lystra and Derby in Galatia, from east to west, all of these churches were either founded by Paul in his missionary journeys, or some of them were founded by those who had actually received Christ in the ministries of Paul. Now, Paul did not start the church in Colossae and probably never even visited there. But it had to be the outgrowth of his three-year ministry in Ephesus, which you can read about in Acts chapters uh, 19 and 20. Now, during Paul and Timothy's tour through Phrygia, and I mentioned Phrygia earlier, people from Colossae such as Epaphras, Philemon, Archippus, and Apphia, when converted, brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to their native city. More than likely, it was probably Epaphras himself who, who started the church in Colossae. We'll talk about that more when we meet Epaphras later. But the witness to the church in Ephesus had to be so effective in that time that we read in Acts 19, verses 8 through 10, about Paul, it said that he went into the synagogue and he spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were hardened, and that's speaking of diverse people or various other people, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus, and, th and, and this is the verse I want you to see. And this continued by the space of two years. So it gives us a time frame of all the time that Paul has been there with the gospel, laying down the foundation of the, of the Christian faith and all. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwell in Asia. Now notice this. You don't make a statement like all they which dwell in Asia without believing that all they which dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jew and Greek, both the Jews and the Greeks. That is how effective the ministry was of the Apostle Paul in that time that people like Epaphras and the others would have heard the gospel and brought it back to their native city and town, which in this case 
was Colossae. So it was essential then that the church in Colossae understand that Paul was writing in his official capacity as an apostle because they needed to pay close attention to his words and not take anything written to them lightly. Therefore, we read in the text, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's a very strong statement about himself. But it was a statement that was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind this church of the authority that God had given to Paul himself to speak on the basis and the foundations of the kingdom of God. And as mentioned last time, Life, according to Paul, has but one profession. Life, according to Paul, has but one profession. That profession is the will of God. That should be the profession of every believer in Jesus Christ. Not what the will of a church is, not what the will of a denomination is, not the will of of, of a leader of some movement, but the will of God and God alone based solidly and completely upon the foundation of the word of God that is also belonging to God and Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there was one essential relationship that Paul himself begins with when he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, that's the profession But then he says, and Timotheus, our brother. And he brings up the one essential relationship within the church. And as I said, we're not talking so much about the relationship that we now have with the Father because we're not believers in Jesus Christ. That's the essential relationship that we should have. But the one essential relationship that is significant in the church, and that is brotherhood, true brotherhood. Paul reveled in the brotherhood of Christians. He reveled in it, wrote much about it. And let me say that we need to understand this because one of the things that is weakened today in the church of Jesus Christ is the understanding of the preciousness of brethren and brotherhood among the saints. Now I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because we're good, we'll get this in verse 2. But brotherhood is so important. What we have today is a philosophy of the world that people, called the, uh, people call it the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That's a philosophy of the world. That's a secular philosophy trying to kind of, uh, uh, you know, go hand in hand, you know, well, what's the world? But, you know, you can also have a spiritual life. And man is dictating today that there is, there is God, whoever you believe him to be. And so we can say, well, there's a, there's a fatherhood of God. 
Sadly, this goes back to the liberal church in the, in the late 19th century. A fatherhood of God and a brotherhood of all men. All men are brothers. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound bad. Until you begin to realize something about the scriptures. Jesus was confronted by his own people, the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of his own Jewish faith, as it were. And they confronted him hard when he would speak about his father. When he responded to their retorts, he said, You are of your father, the devil. What does that tell us? It tells us there really isn't a father, there isn't this fatherhood of God. God is only father to those who are truly his sons and daughters. And all of that is very clarified in the word of God. It only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why brotherhood in the church is so important. That's why unless you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you may not be among brothers and sisters. But we want you to be. We want you to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Father of all things can truly be your Father. Because there's only one other Father. And Jesus already mentioned him. You see the you see the dilemma where the church puts itself when we begin to say that other religions are just as important as Christianity. This is not an arrogant thing. This is what humbles us to understand who our God is. And by the way, it was a truth that would be tested to the utmost in Colossae. This issue of brotherhood. It would be a truth tested to the uttermost. Where many people were yielding at that time to the very persuasive teachings of cults. The Gnostic cults, which we will again get to when we finally get there in the text. But families themselves would be split over these issues as often is the case. And church fellowship would also be put to the test. And Paul understood this better than most. Because Paul to the church in, in Philippi would write this. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. He said, if there be any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love. And consolation and comfort are very much the same word. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love. If any fellowship of the spirit. If any bowels and mercies, in other words, if there are mercies in the, the very deepest part of your life, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And then he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Concern yourself more with the needs of others than with your own. Esteem others. We, we live in a society that, that talks a lot about self-esteem. The Bible says, no, you esteem others. When you lower yourself to others, I'll lift you up. We don't have to worry about self-esteem. The Lord lifts us up. So with all those things in mind, we move on to the recipients of Paul's letter, which is in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. May I say to you that the word and here does not mean there are two different classifications here. It's not to the saints, oh, and also to the faithful brethren. I'll explain in just a moment. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That last phrase, of course, is very common in all of Paul's writings, for the most part in most of his letters to the churches. But we hear him say immediately in this verse, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. To the saints. Saints. We get an idea of saints nowadays uh, from possibly past experiences. Uh, if, if any of you grew up in, in the Roman Catholic Church, um, we have a, a, a different uh, view of, of what a saint is. And uh, yet, what are saints? Because he's writing to saints. And I'm thinking, he's writing to living people. I think they're all alive still in Colossae. Aren't they? Well, he's got to be writing to somebody that's alive to listen and read and, and pay attention to the things that he's saying. You've got you to have a little life in you. Just like I'm looking around right now and some of you are barely alive. I mean, honestly, you know. I know it's only going to be 10 o'clock, but you've got to have a little life in you. Okay, so to the saints... Well, what are saints? Well, that, let, let me just say, that is what we are. That is who we are. Saints. And you might ask, well, isn't that being a bit overconfident? Well, not if you define the word saint properly. Because the word has obviously fallen victim of centuries of false teaching and become the object of false concepts. Because if you happen to believe that a saint is someone that is that is venerated by, by a, a particular church, you have to realize that saint's dead. So who's Paul writing to? A saint in the New Testament is simply a sinner who has been saved by God's grace. That's what a saint is. A sinner who has been saved by grace. I know I reference in prayer the, the, the great song Amazing Grace, but think about that song for just a moment. Think about the words of John. Uh, Newton, almost forgot his name. 
Who wrote those great words? You know, just think about those, those words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, don't ever change that word wretch. Some churches do. Oh, that's just, we're not wretches anymore. Well, yeah, look in the mirror every morning. And think what the potential could be if you don't get on your knees and start praying to the Lord and committing your day to him. You see, the Greek word for saint is the word hagios. Hagios. And, and essentially, it means separated and set apart. Isn't that what God does to us when we come to Jesus as our Lord and Savior? When we surrender ourselves to him? When we say, Lord, I, I don't want to live this way any longer. I, I, I want you to be at the center of my life. We confess the Lord with our mouth. We believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead. It says you shall be saved. Which also means you shall be changed. Which also means you shall then be separated and set apart from the world and set apart unto God. That is what a saint is. And as, as used among the common secular Greeks, they used the word hagios also. But it carried the idea of being dedicated to the gods. In the New Testament, it has everything to do with being consecrated to the one true and living God. And by the way, the word consecrated is also connected to the understanding of separation and holiness. The very idea of holiness clings to the word hagios. But we are considered holy not because of our own merit, but because as believers who are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we were made recipients of the imputed, credited, and attributed righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. In fact, we're told in the book of Isaiah that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. The righteousness that the, the New Testament tells us we put on is always like a garment. We put it on is always the righteousness of Christ. The process of becoming a saint in the Roman Catholic Church is so long and drawn out that we would not have time to even outline the steps. Suffice it to say that in contrast to that process, it is God himself who makes of us all the very moment that we accept the truth. He makes us all saints the very moment that we accept the truth that he sent his only begotten son to be both our savior and our Lord and that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? So furthermore, our being saints is not based on any good works that we may have done, but again, on the inexpressibly overwhelming righteousness of Christ. No mythical fires of purgatory need to burn out the remaining rubbish still clinging to us in the hour of death. You know, when you see clearly the whole line and process of, of what a person goes through, you know, that's been recommended to become a saint in, in the Catholic Church, you, you realize that one of the things they have to do is they've got to go through purgatory to kind of like, you know, finish 
the purging process of any other sins or whatever. And I'm thinking, really? What about the cross? I'm told in the scriptures that the cross took, took care of it all. What about the blood of Jesus Christ? I'm, I'm told that the blood of Jesus Christ took care of it all. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 7, just to clarify. And you know, there are many other passages, but all we need is one. One good one. Here's a good one. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and notice this, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us cleanseth us from all sin. Oh, that little word, all, is such a big word. Cleanseth us from all sin. But something else that we are, or should I say that we are also to be, that is faithful brethren. Saints and faithful brethren. Now, we're not saying there's two classes in the, in the church at Colossae. We're not saying that there are two classes. Saints, and then there's others that are faithful brethren. Little, little step up here, right? No. Paul introduces us to three men, all of whom he calls faithful. Colossians 1 verse 7 says, As you learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. You go, to, you go to the last chapter, Colossians 4 verse 7, and Paul speaks of a man named Tychicus. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Go down two verses later in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, and he speaks of Onesimus, the once prisoner who now is a believer in Jesus Christ. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. So there is faithfulness being exhibited by certain people in that church. Yet Paul says very clearly to the saints and faithful brethren. Now some would argue and say, well, he's talking about all the saints generally and then those who are a little bit more faithful as well. And that's possible, I'm not saying it isn't. But Paul is hearing, now remember, Paul is hearing about this church because he's never been there. And what he's hearing is that those who have come to Christ in this church particular church in Colossae are faithful brethren in Christ. The Greek word that Paul uses for faithful is the word pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S, pistos, which carries the idea of being reliable and trustworthy. It can also be used for being steadfast in allegiance and affection. It could also mean to be full of faith. And it could also mean to be loyal, firm in adherence to promises or in the discharge of duty. In other words, just being faithful in whatever calling God gives you, 
faithful in whatever things uh, are before you to do for the sake of Christ and the church. Uh, faithful in, in, in just your affection to the Lord. Paul, in, in essence, is describing this church as being one that truly pours their hearts out, filled with the faith of God in Christ to serve one another and to love one another, as we'll see next, next week. But each of these definitions that I've mentioned can be applied to every believer in Jesus Christ. Or I should say, it should be applied. And again, sadly, here's where some people uh, draw certain lines. They're more concerned about just get, entering in and becoming a saint, which is the work that God does in us, and then is satisfied in not doing anything more than that. My encouragement to you is that if you have been brought into the body of Christ and you have become a saint, you are a sinner who is saved by the grace of God, then you are to be a faithful servant of the Lord. You are to be a faithful brother to one another. You need to start moving and grooving in Christ. to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. Here is a very challenging statement. Here is a challenging statement. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. What's the challenge? Well, we as believers have two lives and two addresses. We have two lives and two addresses. One is earthly, the other is heavenly. Just for our sake, let's consider us here. We live at El Paso. And as believers, we are in Christ. We are at El Paso, we are in Christ. Two addresses. The challenge is we need to always keep the appropriate, subtle, or suitable, I should say, balance. We need to keep an appropriate, suitable balance of who we are. We're at El Paso, that's our address. We are in Christ, that's our life. We're in Christ, that's our life. We're at El Paso, that's our address. And we, for the most part, know all about where we live, shouldn't we? People at Colossa knew where they lived, knew what it was all about. They knew all, where, they, where they lived, they knew their surroundings and, and everything else. For us, we live, uh, we know our surroundings, we know the scenery, we know the shops, we know the sights. But are we familiar with Christ with the Christ that we are now living in. Are we familiar with him? Are we spending time with Jesus? Because he is our life. As Paul will say later on in Colossians, listen, listen to this, I'll just, I'll just go ahead, you don't have to turn there, but, but this is what, what Paul says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. 
For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Christ is our life. If he's our life, do you, if he's your life, do you know him? Are, are you intimately aware of who he is? Are we wrapped up in him, ready and able to enjoy all the riches and all the resources of the Godhead? Do we carry the fragrance of Christ wherever we go throughout this city? I, I, I wrote a little thing in, in, in brackets here by this particular thought quest, and, and questioning that I'm giving you right now. I, I wrote this little thought. It was little time for the work of God. If we aren't familiar with who Christ is, that's because we have little time for the work of God. That's not a good thing, is it? But then I considered the other challenge. The other challenge is that of being so caught up with being in Christ that we forget that we live at El Paso. Becoming so, as somebody once put it, becoming so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use. We can find ourselves, listen, we can find ourselves just listening to Christian radio or whatever we listen to. I don't, I don't always encourage that because you get a kinds of weirdness in Christian radio stuff. You have to be discerning. You have to listen, pay attention. But, you know, you can listen all day long and take notes and, and pray. And, and it, but are you, are you witnessing your faith in Christ? Where you live? You know what I wrote at the end of that phrase? Little time for the work of God. The same problem. And it came down to a couple of perspectives given to us by Jesus. Here, here's one perspective found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. There toward the end of his his great message uh, to those who were listening. In Matthew 7, verse 21, he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Remember what we said about that one profession of ours, which is the will of God. And then Jesus went on and said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? Now, I have to ask you a question. Do you think that they'd be lying before the Lord? No, I think they really believe that they, they were actually prophesying in the name of the Lord. And they, they were casting out devils in, the name, in thy name. Done many wonderful works. Now you, you won't be standing before the Lord and lying. But there has to be something deeper to this very issue that Jesus is bringing up. He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we've not, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils. In thy name done many wonderful works. And look at verse 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. That, that's painful to hear. 
coming from the lips of Jesus himself. You said you've done these things and that thing, but were you doing it for me? When did you take the time to, to know who I am? When did you take the time to know how much I care and love about the things that you do, but you went off and did your own thing? And I never knew you. How serious is it, Lord, is it, uh, church? How serious is it to know the Lord that we serve? In devotion, in prayer, in time spent with him. But there was another perspective that Jesus gives us. There's another perspective that Jesus gives us. It's in John 15. In verses 9 through 14, when Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. That is, amongst each other. If you keep my commandments... Ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You talk about that suitable balance. Jesus had the perfect balance. Of course, he would always have the perfect balance as he was perfect. Verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love with a complete heart. I mean, how has the Lord loved us? He certainly hasn't loved us half-heartedly, has he? He has loved us wholeheartedly. Greater love hath no man than this, that, that a man may lay down his, his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. So, so we see the two perspectives. I mean, one is a, a very hard perspective. There are those who go out and do all kinds of stuff. But they don't know the Lord that they serve. And the other perspective is really more the, the heartfelt you know, just serve with the love that I've given you to serve with. He tells the church, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul in verse 2. Which, as I said before, is Paul's usual apostolic greeting. Grace in the Greek is the word charis, which means undeserved favor. And interestingly enough, it comes from another Greek word, kaire, which uh, was actually the word that was used for a salutation or greeting, so it is a greeting. And you're, you're greeting people with, with, by saying charis, by saying, listen, may God's undeserved favor be yours. But, but it is even more than that. Charis is more than just God's free, unmerited favor. 
It is favor against merit. It is God's favor against our merit. Think about it for just a moment. Because when we merit the very opposite, in other words, if, if, if we say, I don't deserve this favor that God wants to give me or this favor that the Lord has given me, And the Lord lavishes his mercies, his loving kindnesses upon us. That is what grace is. It is favor against merit. I've got nothing. I have nothing that is of any good before God and before Christ. Nothing. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to be where I am today. I don't deserve it. But I accept whatever it is that God has given me as his undeserved favor and his grace. I consider it all merciful. And the more mercy I receive, the more humble I feel. I have nothing to boast in. I understand fully what Paul meant when he said, I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. The only reason I can boast in that is because I know that that cross was not for him, it was for me. And it was for you too. It is the one who sits on the throne of grace that bids us to come. And you know that he bids us to come confidently. He bids us to come boldly, as it says in the scriptures, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast which means let us hold on strong our profession, our profession of faith. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. I find this to be probably the most, the, the bestest, if, I, if bestest is the word, the bestest double negative in English. It is the bestest double negative. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You know what it says? We have a high priest who has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities and was in all points tempted like us, yet without sin. That's our victory, his sinlessness. His victory over sin. His victory over death. His victory over hell. His victory over the tomb. Let us therefore, because of what Christ has done, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. Confidently. But not confidence in ourselves. Confidence in what Christ has done.
let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The peace that, that Paul speaks of here uh, in the Greek is the word eidene. If your name is Irene, ladies, or you know, if your name is Irene, that mean, you, you have, your name means peace. Eidene. But it is a word that, that uh, coincides with a Hebrew word, shalom. The fullness of that meaning belongs to Eidene. And the peace that Paul speaks of here is that peace of God that surrounds and protects his people's hearts in the evil day. We have this peace in the midst of the most disturbing and unsettling of circumstances. I said last night as I was thinking of, of, of Sonny in the, in, in the hospital, I thought, you know, Pastor Fred and, and, and Barbara today have that peace while they're there waiting for God to do a great work in their son. In spite of what they see, They have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Paul writes about this to the Roman church. When he, when he writes in, in Romans 8.28, we know and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. And it's in Philippians 4 verse 7. I've already made reference to it, but I'll say it. The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep, guard, protect, garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is what every church needs to know. This is what every church needs to stand upon that loves God, that loves Jesus, that loves the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that loves the word of God with all of their heart. And they don't let the world dictate how they do, they're to read it or study it, but they're to live it. Colossians 3.15, Paul says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. And so, in his opening greeting, the Apostle Paul reveals his passion for people, both as a minister of the faith and a member of the family. With great affection, he draws God's people into the circle of his love, into the certainty of being saints, and into the center of faithfulness and God's blessings. And so next time, we'll focus our attention upon foundational issues as Paul establishes his theme, the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Christ and the headship of Christ over the body, the church.